Welcome to episode 617 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Howdy. Hi. Doing a little different today. Making some noises. Eating some ice cream and drinking some coffee. What flavor? It's going to be a good show. Normal coffee flavor. Oh, you mean... I meant the ice cream. Dulce de leche. Hmm. Okay. You taking milk with the coffee as well? Low cream. Uh-huh. Well, I'm happy that we have reached the listener email show. It's nice to have this little break in the midst of the team preview podcast series. Can kind of relax a little bit. No guests to impress or yeah. s- sound professional for. Well, the email show was originally conceived of as, as almost like a day off. And, um, and then in the off-season, when we were only doing three episodes... Uh, it did not feel like a day off because uh, we each of us only had to come up with one time. Remember when we used to have to come up with each of us came up with five topics a week? <laughs> each one of us. We came up with 10 topics a week. Didn't last very long. Not very long, but still a lot mm-hmm. of topics. And uh, so the email show was one day we didn't need topics. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, I guess this off season because it was the longest show and it was uh since it's easy to come up with one topic a week which is all you and i were responsible for in the off season uh in fact the email show became the hardest one because it required some some extra prep mm-hmm. uh and now it's back to being the uh the easy day the, yeah. the the day that requires a little less prep or less thought i guess at least yeah well it's the day when we have to get through a lot of important business because it builds up during this week when we can't talk about about banter and so all of these things pile up so we've we've received i think three fat player photo nominations matt albers signed with the white Sox. barry zito signed with the a's what else oh there was a bit of very old business that i wanted to get to on episode 565 last october we talked about joe madden and at the tail end of our joe madden discussion you brought up the fact that Joe Madden's wife was planning to wine bar. Uh, she yeah. was pl- she was planning to open a a gym of oh, some right. sort, and yeah. you asked me to put a probability on whether she would actually open the gym, given <laughs> that Joe Madden was going to Chicago. There yeah. has been a development in Joe Madden's wife's gym. Was the development development? Yes, it was. They developed. They actually went through with the development. They did. So you put a, a well, I put a 25% probability on her <laughs> opening the gym. If we had known more, we probably would have put higher because I imagine that the gym must have been very much in progress at that point. But we didn't know a whole lot about the gym. So I said 25% probability that the gym would open. You said 2% probability <laughs> <laughs> that the gym would open. But the and gym it, has well, opened. To, to be fair, in my life, any plan involving a gym has a 2% probability of happening. <laughs> I see. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Jay Madden opened a place called uh, Epic Boxing and Fitness Studio. It is the first Tampa studio to offer spoxing, which mimics professional boxing. The first three rounds are done on spin bikes, and then athletes transition to the bags. So it mimics... Hang on. It mimics Hang on. A- <laughs> it, mimics. it mimics real boxing. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, you you throw some punches, you get on a on a bike and pedal furiously for a while, and then you punch the bag again. So it's it's good preparation for a real life fight. Uh huh. And Joe Madden owns a restaurant in Tampa, so we really yeah. underrated his his ties to the local community. Did we not mention the? Re- I knew about the restaurant at the time because I, don't I had. Think we uh, did. At the time, I had just very recently tweeted about his uh, how he is more into Spanish wines than Italian. I think mm-hmm. uh, he's a you know connoisseur. And uh, in the press release about that restaurant, he uh, he talked about his 
uh, affinity for Spanish wines, which I found like, uh, which I felt like was a, a, a pretty good joke if someone wanted to develop it, uh, hiding in there, but mm-hmm. I didn't feel like developing it. So what did you think? He would just close the restaurant or he'd, he'd continue to operate the restaurant, uh, the, but the, yeah, but his the wife restaurant, wouldn't open the gym? Well, the restaurant wasn't under his name. And so it seemed like uh-huh. it would be pretty easy for him to leave. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, just be an owner of it, right? I mean, it, the fact that Madden owned the restaurant was uh, not, so far as I could tell, like it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a themed restaurant. There weren't, you know, Joe Madden jerseys up or anything like that. It was just a nice restaurant that he was an investor in mm-hmm. and, and perhaps a uh, wine consultant too. Yeah. I hope anyone who's just joining us for the first time in a listener email show after catching on with our team preview series We'll come to understand in time that these shows are, are an acquired taste. Spoxing. <laughs> Spoxing, yeah. So uh, what else? There was there was some real news. The strike zone will perhaps be raised. We've talked about the lowered strike zone many times. So that is now being discussed. The Yankees retired every number of everyone who ever played with them. Which, Hang on. Just yeah. real quick. I just Googled Spoxing to see how much uh, of a pre-established trend it was elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And the entire first page of results is Madden related. <laughs> well, it's the first It's the first place in Tampa. Uh, yeah, but it might be the first place. think that'd be on the cutting edge of it might be the first place. Trends. Yeah, it might be the first place, period. It seems like maybe the first two. Well, never mind. Forget it. <laughs> done, done with Spoxing. <laughs> yeah, well, the Maddens are innovators. You know what I've been meaning to do? Do you remember the Hairstons article I did? I do. <laughs> uh, let's see what I called that. So this was, uh, the premise was that uh, at the time, the Hairstons were indistinguishable and that uh, your life would be a lot simpler if you had simple ways to tell them apart. And so I went deep, deep into the Hairston family history uh, to do a quiz on whether you could tell your Hairstons apart. And uh, one of the things that I unearthed in this investigation was that Scott Hairston is, I'm going to read this, Scott Hairston is the co-owner of an entire sport called Sabaki Ball. <laughs> <laughs> he, he owned the sport, like he literally owned the sport. He owned the rules and the copyright or trademark or whatever. He owned it all, and this was a sport that they were trying to get leagues around the country playing. Uh, there was a long video, a marketing video, that uh, GIFs were generated from. So Scott Harrison is the co-owner of an entire sport called Sabaki Ball. In Sabaki Ball, teams of five players try to advance a ball across a field and throw the ball at a defended goal. Movement is nonstop. Teams must be co-ed. And Stanford is going to be offering it as an intramural sport. A starter kit cost about $1,000. And um, uh, Sabaki Ball was currently being played in these countries around the world. Alabama, Canada, China, Africa. Love the Africa as country. Love, always like that. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that in my mind other than the horrible offensiveness of it. Um, and uh, so I've been meaning for the last, oh, nine months to go find out how Sabaki Ball is doing, and I haven't. So someone can post on the Facebook page if they've played Sabaki Ball lately. Maybe they can integrate it with Spoxing. Mm-hmm. It won't be any less no. like a, a real fight. So they should just spot Sabaki Boxing. <laughs> It flows it off the tongue. Fits, it, it fits <laughs> nicely in there. Spobaki boxing. All right. All right. Before we get to emails, do you does any of these fat player photo nominations pique your interest? We got three nominations. One was Yasiel Puig. Another was Pablo Sandoval, which seems <laughs> seems uh, sort of extraneous. We, I don't know if we really need to cover that one, but very fat though. Very fat. Very Not- yes. Yeah, there is there is that famous diagram of of uh, Pablo Sandoval's stomach that Bill Hanstock made at SBN. <laughs> it's like a six, it's like a tree ring sort of thing where it's like six layers of his stomach, and it it it's a gift, so it it recedes and expands, so you can see where he is on the the Pablo Sandoval stomach scale scale, and it goes up to six. And I asked Bill where this <laughs> current photo would place on that on that six stage scale and he said eight or nine. <laughs> oh wow so, so i uh yeah he was fat i didn't see the puig i didn't see the, the fat puig i'm sorry i'll send you that uh there was also a a jose fernandez one i don't know if you saw that one i'll send you that one too you can take a quick look neither one is is a smoking I'm, gun 
The Puiguan Molly Knight tweeted, he's standing on a boardwalk by a beach and he looks like David Ortiz because he's got big sunglasses on and like a chin strap, uh, facial hair sort of thing. And he looks large, but quite muscular. So. Yeah, I, uh, I'm going to go yes on Puig, no on Fernandez. Mm-hmm. Fernandez is wearing one of those shirts that reveals every detail underneath, and he's kind of pressing it against his body. So there's there's visible lines under there, but but I don't think it rises to the level. So now, I don't think the lines... I think the lines are just wrinkles in the shirt. Mm, well... It depends which lines you mean. There's there's texture. If you're saying that there's, uh, yeah. there's, there's topography... Right, it's it's pressing. There's contact. Yeah, there is. It seems like that's not convincing to me, though. That seems like it could be muscles. Guy's rehabbing from Tommy John. Mm -hmm. Give him a break. Has the skinny face too. Yeah, yeah. So do better. Look harder. There's lots of players showing up to spring training. Lots of players in the best shape of their lives. No news on Russell Martin yet that I've seen, but lots of other players are in the most shape. All right, so let's do some emails. Uh, Let's maybe take a Matt Trueblood question because it was something that I was interested in and considering writing about, and maybe I will write about it, but we can, can workshop it here. So Matt says, I'm a free market baseball guy all the way. I don't like caps on amateur spending nor competitive balance draft picks, at least the way those strictures have been implemented under the CBA. Competitive imbalance is obviously a threat to the game, but I prefer that teams be allowed to keep and spend their money according to their whims for the most part. But, one sentence paragraph. Sometimes a team does get too far ahead of the pack. The Yankees 15 to 20 years ago had so much money and so little restraint that they could outbid everyone for anything they wanted and, more alarmingly, easily fade any mistakes, even big ones, that did diminish the competition in the American League. Are the Dodgers getting to that point? They're talking about going after Hector Oliveira to play third base, which apparently would lead to a trade of Juan Uribe. If the recent pattern holds, the team would eat Uribe's salary and turn him into an actual asset, even as they cast him aside. They did the same thing by offering the Marlins an eight-figure subsidy on Dan Heron and by swallowing nearly $20 million on Matt Kemp. They did something even tackier by signing Brett Anderson for $10 million. The biggest thing for me, though, might be that Erispel Arue Barrena signed for $25 million in February, was DFA'd in December, and wasn't even close to being claimed. The Dodgers had to push a guy they invested hugely in off their 40-man roster 10 months after signing him, and no one could afford to even entertain calling their bluff. In essence, LA got to sign and handle him, I'm not pronouncing the name again, like a bonus, bonus pool guy, but without suffering any of the penalties in terms of signing restrictions or fines that would normally come with that. Have we reached the point where they have too much damn money and something has to be done to rein them in? And I was thinking about this not really in the sense of putting a rule on the books to rein them in, but just that it it's almost impossible to imagine a team being better positioned than the Dodgers are. And we've sort of talked about this before, but it hit home for me even more a couple of days ago when the BP organizational rankings came out and the Dodgers were the number three system on that list. And I I know they were top 10 on some other list. I don't know where they ranked on all the lists, but good system, perhaps a top five system. And of course, all of the other advantages, the giant TV deal, the the new presumably smart front office, the current roster that projects to be the best team in baseball or, or maybe the second best, no, no real powerhouse in the division to compete with, you know, just the ability to spend tons and tons of money. And kind of everything is coming up Dodgers right now, which is is fine because a few years ago they were in a completely different, almost hopeless situation. So maybe they have bounced back and it's fine and they should just get to enjoy it for a while. I don't know that they have risen to the level of breaking baseball, but it is notable to me just how well set up they are. Yeah, uh, they are. It's I mean, I. I feel like um, I, there's always a, a tendency to think that the world is coming to an end and that uh, it cannot possibly persist this way for long. And most of those um, doomsday scenarios don't happen. And uh, so it feels a little premature to be that worried about the Dodgers. 
uh, given that they haven't been to a World Series, mm-hmm. uh, let alone one, five or six or whatever in a row. Um, and uh, I don't know what what's your is your sort of do they feel as invincible to you right now as the Yankees used to uh, in you know the let's say the early to that I don't want to say in the late nineties because they won so many World Series that you might actually have a distorted memory of how invincible they were. Mm-hmm. But in the early and mid-2000s, who seemed like a more uh, cartoonish uh, gorilla in in the rest of the league? Uh, I think probably the Yankees. I don't know. It's hard to separate them from the fact that they were just coming off all those World Series. But, I mean, they had everything that the Dodgers... Well, they didn't really have everything the Dodgers have right now because they n- never... I guess at that point, they didn't really have the the farm system. Maybe they did 10 years before that, but they kind of didn't need the farm system, it seemed like. Like, at at that point, I think probably it was easier for a team like the Yankees to make the most of their resources. So even if they didn't have everything going for them that the Dodgers now have going for them, it probably favored them just as much as all of these factors favor the Dodgers. So I don't think it's different i don't think it's more extreme yeah it seems to me that the yankees at the time if i'm remembering this correctly um they were spending like like double what what any other team was pl- was paying right didn't they at some point have a, sal- a payroll that was twice any other team's payroll am i misremembering that let me take a quick look at bp's compensation page which goes back to i think 2000 and see where they stood there but i mean the gap was I think, larger than the current gap is, which is what on the 2015 page, the Dodgers are at 269 million and the Yankees are at 212. So percentage wise, not really all that huge a gap. Yeah. So like 20 ish percent. And then what's the median? Uh, I don't, I don't know. I will have to calculate that, but, uh, or sort it, but the Yankees in, well, in 2000, they were very close Evidently, uh, they were at 92 million in 2000. Yeah, what about like 2003, 2004? Yeah, that was kind of when it got extreme. Let's see. And the Dodgers were second in 2000. Uh, let's see. 2003, the Yankees were at 154, and the Mets were at 117. Huh. And 2004, the Yankees were at 185, and the Red Sox were at 129. So that's a that's a big gap. That's like um that's like a third difference, right? So that's big. That's bigger than now. And 2005? Got 2005 there? I can in a second. 2005. The Yankees were 210. Ah, here we go. The Yankees were 210 in 2005 and the Red Sox were 125. Uh-huh. So, so that's that's big. They were they were yeah they were like sixty percent or something like that higher than the number two team and then yeah, presumably and pretty much the same two thousand six they were two oh one Red Sox were one twenty four yeah okay so um so there's that that's a factor um the the as um as Tim Britton noted in the essay uh, for the Red Sox in this year's annual the floor of payrolls has risen faster than the ceiling has and so. Uh, even um, you know mediocre or not mediocre, but smallish and mid-market teams have uh, risen faster than teams like the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Tigers and the Yankees have. Um, and uh, I don't know; it just generally feels like the Dodgers' payroll edge is not as big as we maybe make it out to to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Part I guess. Part of the reason that they're part of the reason that they're able to that they've been seemingly spending nonstop for the last two and a half years is that they didn't have they weren't spending much under McCourt, right? Didn't I mean wasn't their payroll mm-hmm. uh, artificially low because of McCourt, and mm-hmm. so they had a lot of room to go before they were even back into the top tier. And of course, they've blown past the top tier and set a new tier, um, but uh, they were making up for lost time. And I don't know. I don't know. So it does feel uh, like I don't. It, it is. I think it's still at this point somewhat amusing to see how they choose to do all these things. If they started winning, then I would probably feel a bit more. Uh, I don't know. 
put out <laughs> by it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now it's like, I don't know that they're, they are a, um, they are kind of an underperformer at this point, aren't they? And it's sort of delightful to have a team that spends a lot of money and is underperforming. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, I guess I the question though, but that's, yeah. I'm not, we're not exactly answering Matt's question. Matt's question is, are, uh, are they unstoppable and do they need to have, uh, do they need to be stopped? Does, mm-hmm. does some outside force need to stop what they're doing? And, um, and there isn't really a, any place where they're, uh, they're, other than the draft, really, and there isn't really a place where they're at a disadvantage. There's no counter, except for, I guess, that they have to pay a 40% surcharge on every free agent they sign. Mm-hmm. And that ought to matter, right? I mean, not mm-hmm. only, so I was thinking about Brett Anderson today, and they're paying him $10 million for a yeah. year. And they're really paying him $14 million because yeah. they pay the surcharge. There so, was that one week where all of the, the broken starters were signed to one-year incentive-laden kind of contracts, and that one seemed like the the biggest reach to me. So so how many teams do you think out of the other 29 would have given Brett Anderson, say, $4 million for a year? <laughs> $4 million, I, I would say eighteen. Yeah, somewhere like a dozen to 18 probably would do that. And that's 4 million. They're paying 4 million just in attacks uh-huh. to do them. And so to me, the Brett Anderson move is the one that it feels like that you can only do that if you don't care if you, it, like if you don't really need his innings. You're just, you know, it's, it's house money at that point. And so that one is the one that kind of blows me away. Yeah. As I said to Matt, I wish I were the Dodgers somehow. So what would you do if you were uh, any other team? I mean, would, can you? is there a way to take advantage of this? Are they a bubble that you might be able to profit off of somehow? I don't know. I mean, I don't want to make it sound as if there's some sort of baseball monopoly or something. And in the end, their chances of winning the World Series are are not so high that that you would even notice in most seasons but i think uh, I, I don't know if there's any way to like topple them by i don't know by by making them play into their their worst tendencies as a big market team that has all the advantages i don't know if there's some way to get them to overcommit to something that will bite them in the end it, it seems to me i mean as matt said it's if they make mistakes they are more able to spend their way out of them than anyone else so, I, but I what do, what do they have that the Yankees didn't have though five years ago? Prospects. Well, they do at this moment because they invested. But did the Yankees? Do you feel like the Yankees? I mean, the Yankees were also drafting were were drafting uh, guys who had slipped in the in the first round for signability reasons, right? And they were mm-hmm. also um, big players on the international market. Was there? They were also signing huge Japanese free agents. I mean, was there anything was there anything distinctly prospect averse about the Yankees during those years? Well, we'll we'll talk about the Yankees when I am the guest on Effectively Wild I guess Yankees so. podcast preview. But I mean, one of the like, things I mentioned in that essay was that they've just had the the worst first round draft returns of any team except I think the Padres were like a fraction of a, a win worse than they were since Jeter and they haven't had a whole lot of hits there so I I don't know whether it's player development or bad drafting there's also a tendency to maybe not trust young starters because they feel like they need to have players be ready right away when they use them and there's the the temptation to trade players at all times which are not things that the Dodgers are are not also susceptible to so I, I don't know maybe the Yankees just haven't been disciplined enough, or they have been worse at it, or they've been unlucky. Yeah, and maybe the Dodgers have just been unlucky. I mean, Jock Peterson was a $600,000 signing bonus who turned into an elite prospect. That wasn't, it's not like that was, to some degree, it was a, a, a organizational decision because he was an 11th round pick and they spent a lot of money on him to get him to play. But still, 600000 they weren't expecting him to turn into this. Urias is, you know, wasn't expected to turn into anything like this at the time and um you know Seeger Seeger's good but again it's not like the other thing is that all those guys are Logan White guys and they let Logan White go so um that's not 
certainly to say that they aren't strongly committed to prospects, but they, um, I don't know, they're they're just a team that's doing some things and and they hit some hit some hit some jackpots right mm-hmm. at that level. I mean, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is I don't expect their farm system to be ranked number three or higher next year um, once a couple of those guys get promoted. Mm-hmm. And I don't expect them to be probably top ten as as a normal thing going forward. I think that they've just happened to get in this place where it lined up just like it did for the Rangers a few years ago when they were the best team in baseball and had a great farm system and just like it did with the Cardinals a couple years ago when they had, were the best team in baseball and had a great farm system or one of the best teams in baseball. It happens every once in a while and then usually something unhappens it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. All right, question from Mike in Danville, California. With the implementation of extreme defensive shifts to combat pull hitters, have or do you expect player development to A, increase the value of spray hitting ability when drafting, or B, teach slash encourage slash develop more spray hitting techniques in the minors? It would seem that defensive shifts have the ability to reduce Babbitt, so a countermeasure would be the development of non-pull hitters that would increase Babbitt. This is and- something you hear, and someone... Who is it? Ruben Amaro recently maybe said that the Phillies were were working on this in the minor league system. Some teams said that. Well, other teams have said that. Do you think? Uh, did you read Jeff Sullivan's piece a couple? I I want to say a couple weeks ago about uh, hitters responding to this and looking at the hitters who did spray the ball more in response to the shift, and then the hitters who didn't spray the ball more in response to the shift. Did you read that? No, I may have missed that. So basically, he took all the guys who saw a lot of shifts. And he looked to see if they went the other way more last mm-hmm. year. And some guys did and some guys didn't. And then he looked to see whether the guys who didn't actually did better. And they did get some more singles the other way, as you mm-hmm. would expect. And then they didn't get some home runs that they pulled, as you would expect. And as it turned out, it was just kind of a wash that Jeff's conclusion was that, you know, you can bunt against the shift. That seems to maybe work, although uh, that's mixed results, too. But that going the other way as an approach is not actually that helpful to a major league hitter. It's mm-hmm. really hard, and uh, you give up something to get what you do. And so uh, you would either we're we're basically talking about one of three things here. Are we talking about hitters who consciously decide to spray the ball um, at this level? Are we talking about player development where you're training guys from the moment you get your hands on them to spray the ball? Uh, the, the sort of the old like the A's trying to teach them plate discipline in the minors kind of thing, but for a new generation. And then, do you select guys who simply naturally have more spray tendencies? And so, do you which one of those three? I guess you think would be the solution, and does any of them seem worthwhile to you? Yeah, I I looked at I looked at how hitters adjust in various situations at Grantland at some point this season, and they don't very much usually, most of them. And I guess I would I would agree with what Jeff found that if you have an established major leaguer who hits a certain way, that I I don't know I don't think the evidence is necessarily strong enough that the shift is so effective that this would be beneficial to most hitters once you adjust for the fact that you're asking them to do different things and that might get them out of their rhythm in some other way and maybe they won't hit the ball as hard and they'll be distracted and who knows what. So I don't know that I would convert people who already hit a certain way. If you're taking raw material, amateurs, presuming that you can teach this at some level between, say, high school and college and the major leagues, if this is something that can be taught post-draft, which I I have no idea how well it can be taught at that age or any age, but I can sort of see the wisdom in it there, but I, I still sort of feel like if you're going to do something to try to beat the shift, it, it, it seems like bunting is so much less drastic. I mean, when you attempt to bunt you are totally giving up on hitting the ball very hard somewhere but if you can master that which seems like it should be an easier thing to do than figuring out how to place hit or hit the ball to a certain spot on the field with a full swing then it's just a much less drastic change in approach that seems like it should affect you less in in non-shift 
at-bats and could be just as effective, if not more so. I've never really understood why some hitters who sometimes put the bunt down against the shift won't do it all the time, or as long as it keeps working until they stop seeing the shift. So, I don't know, there were more bunts against the shift last year, like something like double the number that there had been the previous season. I would expect that trend to continue, so... I don't, I don't know. If I thought I had a hitter who had the natural ability to be a really good spray hitter, and it maybe he isn't a huge pull-power guy and it wouldn't really affect him in any other area, then sure. But I'm not sure that I would remake my whole hitting philosophy with this in mind. I like Russell's uh, explanation, or one explanation, for why players might not bunt, even though they seem to be able to squeeze some extra value out of it, which is the kind of the golden ticket theory uh-huh. yeah. that you should save it for the moment when it will be most helpful so that right. you can really maximize. Uh, and so I like that, but then I wonder if we see that. Like, I don't think we, yeah, that, I, I like know Russell proposed hoarding. that. Yeah, they're all just hoarding <laughs> tickets. Russell proposed that for David Ortiz, I think. Like, maybe that's why David Ortiz doesn't do it. But David Ortiz has been in, like, the highest leverage <laughs> situations imaginable. Like, what is he yeah. waiting for? He's almost 40 years old. He's played in World <laughs> Series games. Like, what is he, where is he going to cash in this ability? So. It's going to be his last at bat. He's going to be, like, his Ted Williams home run. And he's going to just be so mad when someone tells him, Updike's dead. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, well, I don't know. So that's, those are my thoughts on that. I'm not, I'm not sold on, on the contact hitter necessarily being the solution in this offensive context in the high strikeout era. That's a little different. It's not quite the same issue, but the the spray hitting thing, I, I don't know if someone has an inclination to be able to do that. And I don't know how many people do, even if you get them at a early age, I don't, I don't know how many people have that ability because some percentage of people who have the ability to just hit like they do now, just pulling balls or not worrying about which which direction they're hitting the ball. And some percentage of those players probably couldn't be spray hitters, even if they tried from from day one. So it seems like you're you're reducing the sample even further there. And I don't, I don't know that the shift has such a drastic effect on enough guys that it's worth tampering with them to that degree. Yeah, I've been wanting to write about Colby Rasmus mm-hmm. and his problems with the shift because he, uh, he, there was an article about him late in the season when uh, he was with the Blue Jays and he was basically saying that he tried, he tried to, to beat the shift for part of the year. And it just went so badly for him. And then uh, he never really, after that, he just hit into the shift. So, like, either way, like, he had, he had, I, I felt like he had a doubly bad year where he responded poorly to it and then gave into it. And both situations were uh, awful for him. And mm-hmm. I wondered if, if that was true, what he remembered. Mm-hmm. Anyway, play index? Sure. So, Ben. What would you estimate Wade Davis's career ERA as a reliever is? Hmm. Uh, two point nine. It's one point six five. Hmm. Wow. And what what would you estimate as a as a starter it is? Four point seven. It's four point five seven. So you are hmm. only off by one. Hmm. Uh, so Wade Davis, of course, uh, very good. It's a big gap, and uh, his his uh, his Pagoda projection is one, is probably the one that I disavow more than any other. Uh, mm-hmm. Most people, I think, on staff disavow the Corey Kluber. Some people are prone to disavowing the Jeff Samarja. I'm I disavow the Wade Davis. One of these three, I, I feel confident. One of these three is going to turn out right, and um, wh- whoever backed that one is going to look like an like an idiot and feel silly. But Anyway, Wade Davis, his projected ERA is like 3.5 or something like that. And um, I feel like we might have talked about it here. It's hard to project starters who convert to relief because um, you've got hundreds and hundreds of bad innings from them as a starter. And it takes a long time. It takes a lot of seasons of 50 and 60 innings to to undo that. 
And um, it's hard to know exactly which starters are going to take to the role change most. And so anyway, long way of saying Wade Davis, better, I think, than his projected ERA. Um, but uh, that's because he's so insanely good as a reliever, and he was quite poor as a starter. Uh, so poor, in fact, that I wondered, does Wade Davis have the largest gap between ERA as a reliever and ERA as a starter? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I took uh, all the pitchers since 1988 who have thrown 150 innings in relief in their career. They're about 750. And I took all the, the pitchers since 1988 who have started at least, uh, pitched at least 200 innings as starters. And there are also about 750. And then I mashed them together, and that gave me 200, uh, 169, 168, sorry, 168 starters who have done both of those things. So I have an ERA for them as a starter and an ERA for them as a reliever. And Wade Davis has a 2.92 run difference between those two. Hmm. And it is not the highest. It is the second highest in that Hmm. time. So I'm going to give you a chance. (laughs) I'm going to give you a chance to guess uh, who you think is the highest. He is active, and he Hmm. is uh, currently a reliever, not currently a starter. He didn't go the other way. And he is very good. And I wonder if you know him. Uh, what were the minimums on this? 150 innings as a reliever, 200 innings as a starter. Hmm. Well, my guess before you said he was active was going to be Jose Mesa. Where is he on this list anywhere? Let's see if Mesa... Yeah, Mesa is actually 68th, hmm. uh, right around the median mainly because his ERA as a reliever wasn't that good, and probably some of those late years ruined him, but he had a career ERA of 3.96 as a reliever, which is not so good. Huh. Yes, uh, that's a good guess. Jabba Chamberlain. I don't know if Jabba Chamberlain has... Yes, he does. He is 92nd, so he is actually mm. worse, below the median. Jonathan Papelbon. Uh, did I don't Papelbon. know if innings is... No. Andrew Miller. Uh, very good. Good one. Not the answer, but very good. He is, <laughs> he is sixth. Solid. Uh-huh. As a starter, 5.7. As a reliever, 3.38. Because you remember, he wasn't good as a reliever right away. So that's why he's got a chance, though, to, to extend this. He could, he could be a, he could do it, you know, because he only has to get his ERA as a reliever down to about 2.6 in order to take the lead. And mm-hmm. it's, that's not that. That doesn't seem that hard for him. He doesn't have that many innings that he has to compensate for. He's only got 167 innings. So if he has two more years like this one, like last one, he might do it. That's a good guess. Hmm. Glenn Perkins. <laughs> nice. He's right after Andrew Miller. You're getting. <laughs> you're getting your feet. All right. Uh, I'm so getting the range. Glenn Perkins uh, is seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, who else? Would it help if I told you what team he started on? Maybe. What about Latroy Hawkins? Hawkins is number three. Oh. Right after right <laughs> after Wade Davis. He has a three three two ERA as a reliever, six one one as a starter, and it's gonna he has nine hundred and ten innings. I don't think he's gonna make <laughs> a difference. He's gonna pitch forever. Rafael Soriano? Uh he's probably he wasn't doesn't 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 meet the minimum for starter Yeah, okay. I guess it wouldn't be no, can't be Ali Paris. I don't think it should be. He wasn't probably, very good. As, yeah. No. He wasn't very bad as a starter. And he hasn't been that great as a reliever. No, he's although he's he's better than the median, but not by much. He's sixty fifth. Hmm. I wish I could get this, but I've come close enough on some guys that I won't feel bad if I don't. Alright, one more guess. He's very good. He is one of the He's one of the dozen best relievers in the league, I would say. Jeremy Affelt? No. Uh, he is 12th on this list, but he is also <laughs> very much not one of the dozen best relievers in the league. Hmm. Pretty good, though. Yeah, that is good. Oh, no? No. No? No? You don't think? <laughs> Maybe? Nope. Don't think so. <laughs> At this point, it's probably more fun if I don't get it. Just reveal, reveal all. It's Joaquin Benoit. Oh, <laughs> wow. Huh. Yeah, 606 as a starter, 303 as a reliever, and um, and going down. 
so he could pad. He's got he's the only pitcher with three runs difference. Huh. I didn't now, I didn't actually think he had pitched enough as a starter, but I guess yeah, he, he did. I, I didn't. If you'd asked me how many <laughs> games he'd started as a, I might have guessed zero. I as soon as I looked, I remembered that. Oh yes, he did. Uh, the uh, the leader in the opposite direction is Dustin Hermanson. He's got a ERA, almost a run better as a starter, but uh, he just na- it's too bad because he narrowly edges the, the champion on the other side, who is much more fitting, and that is Johan Santana, who mm. uh, has a three one four ERA as a starter and three nine six as a reliever, and about thirty of these guys were better as starters than relievers, although. Uh, that can be sometimes because they started at different times in their career. They might have relieved later in their career when they were terrible, or they might have uh, learned to pitch like R.A. Dickey and become good. So um, I don't think it's a matter of saying, oh, well, they were suited to starting necessarily. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we've got about 30 of those guys. Right. Good including, one. including Norm Charlton, which mm-hmm. is odd. Isn't that an odd one? Yeah, he seems like a fastball-reliant sort of guy. Well, he seems like a, a relief ace. Who remembers him as a starter? And everyone mm-hmm. re- remembers him as a reliever. Mm-hmm. Kurt Schilling is on the uh, reverse list. Is uh, is Ron Valone somewhere on that list, on the reverse list, close to the reverse? I feel like he was not a whole lot better as a reliever. No, he's not really close to the reverse list. He's around mm-hmm. the median. Okay. All right. Well, we named lots of relievers. Mm-hmm. Cool. So play index, coupon code BP, get your discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. All right, let's do a question from Eric Hartman, who says, how would baseball be different if Moneyball were never published? Hmm. Number one way is that my microphone is currently resting on a copy of Moneyball. So you would probably be hearing slightly more hum from my computer transmitted through my table if Moneyball had never been published. Actually, I'd probably just be resting it on a different book. Huh. I don't, I mean... It's a good question. Uh, it is a good question. I, it, it seems like you could sort of spoil the question by saying that if Moneyball had never been published, someone else would have written the equivalent of Moneyball within yeah, but it wouldn't a couple of years. Good. It wouldn't have been wouldn't as, have been as good, no. It wouldn't have been a hit. I mean, it wouldn't have been a hit like Moneyball was a hit. I think that, that it would have been... Probably almost irrelevant within the industry. Uh, I don't quite mean that because I think there are ways that, um, like, I don't know that, I don't know that quite so many BP staff would have been hired, for instance, and I don't know that BP would have ever been as big as it was, and I don't know if, um, you know, like, I think that there are a lot of people whose lives would be very different. Like, I could see Nate Silver's life being very different, and I could certainly see mine being very different because that's reading the. Uh, excerpt that ran in the New York Times magazine was really what got me into baseball prospectus way back. Lots, in, yeah, lots of people fit into that bucket. Like Farhan, yeah. Farhan Zaidi, right? He read Moneyball and sent his resume to the yeah. So I think there's probably a ton of individual lives that would be very different. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it would have been hugely different, though, as far as leagues adopting it or strategies that uh, became prevalent or technology that developed. Uh, it would just be different people playing with them in slightly different ways at maybe a slight, I don't know, maybe a slightly different pace and maybe not quite as confrontational, maybe? I don't know. Do you think that the weird stats uh, scouts war of 2005 to 2008 would have happened? Well, it was already sort of a subtext, right? I mean, BP predated Moneyball, and there were people at BP at the time who sort of had the you know, stats versus scouts mentality to some small degree, at least, just just as a reaction to kind of the scouting-dominated norm that was there before. So, I don't know, that sort of existed. It wouldn't have been blown up into famous scenes about throwing chairs or talking about players' girlfriends and the, the scenes that were exaggerated and immortalized in the movie. So, yeah. Like, might not be as well known but it was i mean it was it was a real tension for a while where people were breaking into the game and new new positions and potentially threatening the jobs of other people or so it seemed at the time so there would have been i think some 
some friction there regardless. Yeah, I think there would have definitely been some friction. There would definitely have been some and probably a lot. It felt like to me, though, that when if it if the power was like 90-10, then it would just be like the stat side would have just always been this somewhat marginalized, scrappy underdog who knew his place. And instead, it got to be sort of almost 50-50, like the, the, the mainstreaming of it made everybody really bold and made it much more threatening and turned it into, you know, a fight between two heavyweights instead of like a fight between, uh, you know, I don't know if this analogy quite works, but between like a, you know, a big dude and a little dude and the little dude knows enough to start fights with the big dude. And he just sort of talks about the big dude behind his back and then tries not to get beat up. Mm -hmm. Probably not. I would say the analogy probably does not work, (laughs) but I don't know. It felt like uh, the 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 way that it became really really huge, and where uh, you could plausibly just you could plausibly surround yourself with so many people who were like minded that you could convince yourself that the other side was idiotic and without uh, any redeeming qualities probably made the tone a little bit more toxic. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's hard it's... to remember. It's it's really hard to remember any of those years. It's such a good story, and there are so many millions of baseball books published that someone would have come along within, I don't know, a couple of years and written the same thing about someone, I would think. But that problem, that that person wouldn't have been Michael Lewis, and it wouldn't have had such mass appeal. I, I would imagine that everything would have happened a little bit later and a little bit more slowly, and we probably would not be doing this podcast for one reason or another. But the end result would have been the same. Yeah, a, a little more slowly is not a factor that matters mm-hmm. in the yeah. long scheme of things. It's the old question about if baseball were different, how different would it be? It's not that question at all. <laughs> well, it turns out again that it probably wouldn't be that different. I see. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we've talked long enough. We uh, There's one topical question since it's arbitration season. Andy asked... Why does the arbitration system use such dumb criteria for awarding salaries? From what he understands, it has a heavy dose of playing time along with old-fashioned stats like RBI and wins. Even a system just based on playing time alone would probably be fairer or at least simpler. But why does Josh Donaldson, the seventh most valuable position player over the last three seasons, lose his case for a measly $5.7 million? Wouldn't be hard for MLB to instruct arbitrators to use more sophisticated criteria. Who is benefiting from the current system, and why isn't there an effort to more strongly link ARP salaries with production? Is there someone who has the the incentive to keep arbitrators ignorant? I mean, the the basic idea, right, is that these arbitrators are not full-time baseball arbitrators. They're not necessarily experts in baseball. They're not necessarily well-versed in advanced stats, and so you have a limited time to argue your cases and so you don't want to spend a bunch of that time explaining what war is or how war is calculated or assuaging the doubts of the arbitrator that this stat that they have never heard of is actually a legitimate thing that reflects actual player value and then there's the whole comp system it's it's based on what players have made in the past and the whole history of arbitration is based on these traditional stats and so if you suddenly broke with that you'd have players with the same amount of service time and playing time, but different productivity that would maybe not work as comps anymore and it would get complicated. I think, I mean, things are moving toward a greater acceptance of advanced stats, but I guess those are still the the hurdles. I don't know if there's one side that has much more incentive to make sure that these stats are not admissible. I've, uh, I'm not, I've, I'm not prepared to answer. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. There. Your mom, your mom is an arbiter, an arbitrator. Uh huh. Does she? I mean, she doesn't arbitrate in a narrow field of only things that she understands, right? She did baseball arbitration at Baseball Prospectus, right? When we did our arbitration series last year, or mm-hmm. was it last year? Maybe two years ago. Yeah, it was. But yeah, professionally, um, I don't know. I guess I... she probably focuses on things that she knows more so than than a baseball arbitrator typically does, I think. Uh, does she? Yeah. Maybe Jason knows. Maybe he does. 
I don't know why it would favor one side or another. There are individual cases where it helps one side or another, but I don't know if it would help the team side more often than the player side or vice yeah. versa. Or... I don't know. I think the the thing that I like about it, or that I, I think I the thing I might like about it if I were either side, is that by ha- if you if you made them baseball experts and you know you ha- your arbitrators were always baseball experts who were capable of of hearing this advanced you know discussion like an umpire would uh for instance then you'd you'd sort of have they would they would quickly be part of the game part of the part of the i don't know part of the the ongoing story and i just would feel like after a couple years there'd be a Everybody would think every, that the the guys were against them. They would they would feel like they were somehow too sympathetic to one side or the other. That you kind of knew this guy's bias and so on. And um, so there's something I don't know. That something maybe that's nice about having just this guy who shows up who doesn't have anything to do with your life any other day, and he's there just to be fair and just to listen to you. And sure, he's kind of a he's kind of a dummy compared to you about the topic, and you have to speak slowly to him, and that's annoying. And um, maybe it maybe it feels nice because you think, oh, well, he's dumb, I can take advantage of him. But so does the other side. Um, but at least he's you know he's only there to be fair. He's not there to be you know pals with one side or the other. He's not there to be part of baseball. He's not there for any ulterior motive other than just to be fair and get his. $350 an hour or whatever. And uh, I don't know. I think there's something a little bit uh, low, lower stress about knowing that. That's a simpler interaction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. We answered some questions. So back to business tomorrow with more team previews. So please keep the questions coming for podcasts at baseballprospectus.com. We will get to more next Wednesday. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. There are some really good threads going on there. 70 comment thread about which hitters swing people like to watch the most from both sides of the plate or a 60 comment thread about the inclusiveness of baseball websites. Or It's become my designated place that I go when I need a break from writing because there are so many people in there all over the world that at all hours someone is posting something interesting. So check it out. And rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. We've already told you to use the coupon code BP to subscribe to the Baseball Reference Play Index. And we will be back with another show tomorrow.